This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Gabe Bradshaw is the founder and director of the Carolos Center for Nonviolence. She holds doctoral degrees in ecology and psychology and was the first scientist to recognize and diagnose PTSD in elephants, chimpanzees, orcas, and other animals. Her books include the Pulitzer-nominated Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity, Carnivore Minds, Who These Fearsome Animals Really Are, Talking with Bears, and co-author of The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. And she's the director and primary carer for rescued domesticated animals and indigenous wildlife at Grace Village, formerly the Tortoise and Hare Sanctuary. So, Gay, welcome back. Thank you so much. I feel very flattered that you want to talk to me again. So I hope I can say useful things. I'm sure you will, because I just loved the stories of, of these animals, of our animal kin. And um, when I was young, I loved animals. You know, growing up in New York City, I had a cat, which I loved. I loved going to the Museum of Natural History and, and checking out the animals. I mean, you know, in the big city like that, in the concrete jungle, um, right. you have to access animals in other ways. Yeah. And I grew up on Jacques Cousteau and things like that. And I grew up loving big cats and wolves. You know, wolves were the perennial underdog in our world, and uh, yeah. I just identified with them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then in this book, The Evolved Nest, your stories about elephants and sperm whales and octopuses just expanded my tremendous appreciation of our animal kin and their, their amazing, innate... Well, I, it's only amazing compared to humanity, but their innate social and emotional intelligence. Yeah. That they haven't lost. No. Even those who are subjected to such horrendous, you know, experiences and indifference and, and things like that. So it's wonderful to hear someone who, a human, you know, who really appreciates who they really are. Yeah. And it's interesting how traumatized animals kind of reveal perhaps what has happened to modern humanity. 
Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I realized that, you know, when I made the diagnosis of complex PTSD in the African elephants, um, I mean, there was a level of it in the sense of, well, they they are vulnerable like we are. But the other part of it that was even more disturbing was how much humanity has pushed them and other animals to break this very deep um, resilience and their essence, their selves. Do you know what I mean? Um, Because they are able to withstand so much in the sense of their generosity. Uh, They retain their equanimity. They retain their capacity for unconditional kindness and love even to those who, for the most part, to those who are so terrible to them. And so the fact when these elephants started to exhibit these symptoms, it really showed the depth to which humanity has subjected non-humans. Yeah, and that in particular has been so moving for me. And I'm also deeply moved by indigenous stories of how American Indians and other indigenous cultures also respond to human insanity and brutality in much the same way, wanting to give us the benefit of the doubt and give us chance after chance to do the right thing or to to return to our humanity, to regain our humanity, to realize and recognize our our shared humanity. Yeah. And for the non-humans, what has really struck me um, in my own experience in sanctuary here and the individuals I've met, the indigenous wildlife, and then also with the elephants and other animals who, you know, come to sanctuary. I, I think that is because they, they've they never left what we call nature. And they're tied to this wellspring of this life force. And so for them, it's, it's just coming, it, it's being able to to tap into that again, you know, rather than just kind of holding their breath until they're able to really uh, live fully with the rest of nature. So there's that deep tie. And I think for us modern industrial technology, you know, whatever you want to call them, the dominating society, which has been increasingly overbearing over the last, according to anthropologists, 10, 15,000 years, that, that tie it's still there, but it has been severed and, and damaged so deeply that we talk about reconnecting and we're already connected. That's the whole thing. But we talk about reconnecting and the animals never have lost connection because they are one with life. Yeah. And they don't use their brains and their minds the way we do to create stories of separation and fear and adversity you know, interpersonal adversity and also the kind of adversity that we have created with nature itself. So even though we act in brutal ways toward them, they don't have the kind of story that would support that kind of a negative reaction to us until they become so traumatized that it becomes a survival issue, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a, when I say interesting, I don't mean curiosity wise i mean interesting it's i talk about it in the in my book elephants on the edge where i discuss the the elephants in africa and other elephants in trauma and there was an elephant um I, I think she's still living her name was minnie and she was one of seven or eight elephants that came from this horrendous circus life the hawthorne circus life horrible torture i mean they're tortured when they're babies and she came to sanctuary when carol buckley had the sanctuary then and 
Carol recounts about how shocked she was that she saw this elephant doing the same things to other elephants, other female elephants that were there that she saw the trainers doing to elephants. In other words, she would be hitting them in places where the trainers, quote unquote, would hit and torture the other elephants. And so in that sense, and I talk about that where, you know, she was so pushed to the extent that she took on the identity of the abusers of the tortures. And we see that in human history, you know, uh, and there's an, you know, people call that the Stockholm syndrome. I don't know if that's a really accurate thing, but in the sense of the way I look at it is there's such a powerful desire and need and understanding of the oneness of connection that in a sense, it becomes perverse. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In the sense of that, that kind of connection. And so when we see things like that, it's, it's quite disturbing. And I think that so much of our society is not sensitized unless someone has actually gone through it themselves, is not sensitized and appreciative of the profound dysfunction and horror of what it means for an elephant to hurt another elephant. Yeah. And you know what? That reminds me of the human birth experience compared to the way you describe the birthing experience of elephants and mm. other other animals in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you know, Darsha has written extensively about the medicalized version of birthing. And in the traditional, I mean, again, that's another example of just how the animal world and nature world trees included is based on the substrate is, is love and connection and care. And oneness, I think that's a much better word than that. So when the baby, you know, before before the baby's even born, the mother is surrounded in this constellation of aloe mothers, other mothers, cousins and children, other children, etc. And then during the birthing experience, it's it's a communal experience. All the other elephants are there supporting, they're, they're moving around her, they're touching her. And when the baby finally does emerge... You know, the way I wrote about it was, you know, there's this sort of sea of tentacles, you know, of the elephant trunks that are reaching out and touching and welcoming. So it's a very joyous experience that is at fundamental is communal. And we don't get that experience. So talk about the profound effect that that kind of birth experience has on a newborn compared to what we experience in our medicalized modern births? Well, I saw the same thing happen. Um, I, I wasn't present, but I saw a video of the baby elephant being born in, in the zoo in California. And the mother was, her arms and legs were bound in chains. And when she was in labor, she was alone, aside from the veterinarians and the zoo people running around frantically. And then when the baby came out, they immediately took the baby away. They grab the baby, and you can see in the video, the baby's eyes are bugged out. I mean, they're like bugging out, and he's in absolute terror. And they took the baby out, and they go, and they weigh him, and, and he's, he's, in, he's in shock. The mother is screaming. She's pulling at the chains to be with her baby. And the chains break, and, of course, all hell breaks loose because the veterinarians and zoo people are all you know panicked and everything. And that right there is a version of how most humans in this modern technical world are born. So they feel the disconnection as such coming from the womb into the outer world. That's a huge shift. 
it's natural, but it's, it's still a huge shift. And so in our experience, for most of us, it's in this sterile world. It's a frightening world. The people who are taking the baby out or holding the baby or not the mother, there's a loss of connection. There's a loss of touch. There's no love. And I'm not trying to accuse the medical community of being mean or whatever. They just don't, you know, it's a business for them. You know, there's not a, it's not a community and it's shocking. And it is, it is traumatic in many different kinds of ways. And so it's that kind of severing that constantly happens in our society. You know, that constant uh, reminder that we are apart, we are separate, and it's a it's a dangerous world. Those are the those are the kinds of messages that we're taught non-verbally and verbally as we grow up in this society. Yeah, and that also reminds me of the healing practice of rebirthing and other types of healing breath work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are efforts to really kind of mend back the natural experience. But there's also a lot of talk, you know, I mean, women, you know, this is historic. I mean, women and the babies died. That was not uncommon. It was kind of the way things are. But now everything is so fear-laden. And there isn't this natural rhythm with life that's going on. Mm. So those are all efforts. But yet at the same time, there's a there's still a kind of a separation. If you look at the elephants again, it's a welcoming not just by the other elephants, but into life which is, you know, the grasses, the smell. I mean, the first thing that the baby smells is grass and and other elephants. And all of that is his world or her world. And so there's there's no disconnection. There's no sense of you and I. It's an implicit us. And they instinctively and innately understand and recognize the importance of that. While we in our modern culture, we're immediately traumatized. I mean, that's that's like an original trauma of of separation that that doesn't get healed for most people ever in our lives exactly 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 and so you know thinking along those lines it becomes almost natural for human beings to act in a way that that if we knew better we would consider to be insane yeah it is. It's it's so widespread and it's so indoctrinated that we never question it. It is never questioned. And not only that, we're punished <laughs> in so many ways for being who we are naturally. You know, automatically, we're taught that there's an other. And when you have a gap that there's an other like that, then immediately it opens up the question of me versus you. And so that really doesn't happen in other animals. Yes, there's discernment. But as I talked about, it's more of a diversity than a difference. So there's a sense of oneness. There's a sense of intrinsic respect for all of life. And that's also, I'm writing a new book about it. But, you know, even in the relationship between a quote unquote predator and prey, I mean, that that has also been so damaging is because we've taken our traumatized and our dysfunctional view of the world and imposed it on nature. And so we look at it as, oh, a wolf, you know, goes after prey, a moose, you know, and the, the, the moose is, is fearful. Well, of course, the moose is fearful. Everyone's fearful if they're going to be dying. But most of the time, they live very compatibly. It's not red in tooth and claw. Gordon Haber talks about it. He, I, I talk about him in the, the wolf chapter. He was a biologist that's studied wolves and moose in Alaska for many years and elsewhere. 
And most of the time, and this is even in Africa, you'll see that uh, talking about in George Adamson, you see that the the lions and the gazelles and the and wherever you are and the moose and the and the wolves are living side by side. And it only is when there's a necessity, that is to say, when someone needs to eat, that there is uh, any kind of, if you want to call it conflict, that there's, you know, someone needs to be eaten as such. But everything goes back. It's not a divisive world. It's, a, like I said, it's a substrate of love. Mm-hmm. And while you were talking about that, it occurred to me that the kind of sensitivity that some people exhibit is often considered to be a sign of weakness. And yes. it's it's kind of beaten out of us. Literally, literally. Liter- exactly. In fact, I was just talking to someone yesterday that any kind of show of vulnerability, <laughs> you know, uh, like you said, it's sensitivity, you know, it's a vulnerability. We've developed a predatorial society. So any kind of sense of vulnerability is looked down on, like there, that's a deficit. There's something wrong with you if you can't take care of yourself or that you, you know, show that if you care about something like a relationship more than getting a piece of your own, then people look down on that. And so again, you know, that's very transactional. Our culture is very transactional as opposed to one of accompaniment. And one of accompaniment is, that's a term that Paul Farmer and Mary Watkins have developed. Again, it's very natural. It's this myth that I'm there for you and I'll be there for you no matter what it takes. And so the sense of I and the individual is subordinated to the us. In fact, a number of indigenous cultures have versions of this. I think this was in Zulu, someone going up to someone in a village saying, you know, how are you? And the man says, oh, not very well. And he said, what's wrong? He said, well, we're not feeling well, we're sick. And he's talking about his grandmother. So in other words, there's an implicit we. So if if you're not well, I'm not well in the sense of that we have that concern. And so what you said about it being beaten out, that's literal. You know, that violence is in there. And of course, that violence then becomes absorbed. And because we're social beings, we connect, we don't want, I mean, also the whole notion of being rejected from society has very real threats. If you're rejected from society, whatever that is, whether it's your family or school or community or whatever, you're an outcast and you are in danger, right? Because everything is based on being a part and belonging and belonging is natural, but it's used against each other as a weapon. Yeah. And belonging to a a sick, insane society is uh, not a healthy kind of belonging. No, no. And that's what it does is it turns into inner corrosion. I mean, that becomes the internalized abuse well, I'm not good enough. You know, they don't like me, you know, and it sort of gets to this inner corrosion that goes on that, again, causes just ill health, mental and physical and spiritual. Yeah, it makes me think of British boarding schools, which seem to be like the epicenter of that kind of brutal, antisocial upbringing that has, uh, I guess, been the basis for the US as well. Well, these public schools, which they call them in England, and the boarding schools were designed, in fact, John Bowlby, right, about that in the book, who, who is a British child psychiatrist or psychologist, he says they are the, you know, sort of the epitome of barbarism. They're brutal. And our boarding schools are like that as well. And they're very elitist. 
right? So the goal is to train the elite, those who have the power, typically there's money and status, right? So that's all these other divisions, training them to be brutal, training them to be brutalized and, and accept it as the norm. So it starts to define that part of society which has power. And of course, that perpetuates itself. And of course, then in both the United States and Canada and elsewhere, the indigenous humans were ripped from their, just like the elephants, were ripped from their families and stripped of anything having to do with their heritage and, and the land and sent to boarding schools, which were brutal. I mean, people even living today talk about having a nail driven through their tongue as children because they were speaking their indigenous language. So all of that, you know, in various ways, um, in sports, I see the same kind of thing, the competition. You know, you're only good if you win, which means that you're better than someone. So all of these different messages really are imbued in the way that children are raised and the way we interact with each other. And they're totally contrary to nature. And you may not like baseball, you may not like tennis, <laughs> but, you know, that's the other kind of thing. And you see this with animals is that, for example, you know, a lot of people, they'll, they go through these trainings with the dogs. They'll have dogs that, you know, learn how to do agility stuff and, you know, um, and people who ride horses and do competition. And I remember I had a colleague and she had a very fancy horse and would do this thing. And the horse was injured and so she couldn't ride the horse. And then um, she was talking about, well, you know, when it looked like, you know, I could ride him, but I didn't, you know, he really was excited to see the bit, you know, the metal thing they put in the mouth, right? And I said, well, that's because that's the only currency he had of connection and care with you. So it becomes this sort of really twisted type of thing that that's, you know, that dogs and horses and cat, it doesn't matter who it is, parrots you know, oh, they really like their tricks. They really like this. Well, that becomes this very perverted medium of connection that the animal is forced to use and appreciate because that's his or her only way of connecting with you because that's the way they've been forced into it. So instead of just like going for a walk with your dog in the forest or, you know, walking with your horse wherever your horse wants to go, it's not dangerous. <laughs> Um, the horse and the dog are forced to go through these gyrations into being a tool for human companionship, and it's justified, well, they love it. And to me, that's no sign of love at all. That's not an expression of love. That's subjugation. Yeah, and many parents have these dreams for their children that they don't bother to check in to see how their children feel about it. And then, in many cases, children live their lives to please their parents on an unconscious level. And I remember when I went to college, I remember one conversation with this very intelligent young woman who was studying to go to medical school. And I asked her, why do you want to go to medical school? Or why do you want to be a doctor? And she had no answer for that. And then she said, that's what my parents want. You know, I've never thought about it. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, everyone has to, quote, unquote, make a living. But what is that living? Right? <laughs> and, you know, automatically, people are told to go to college if they can. And if they can't, they have to join the army. That's the other thing that's happened is that there is no way just to live. I mean, people are doing that. But it's very difficult to live, quote, unquote, naturally. 
you know, you're looked down upon if you don't have purpose. You know, <laughs> you know what? What is your purpose on the planet? You, you know, and you're not valued as a living form that is wanting to be expressed. You know, the part of the beautiful consciousness of just being a beautiful person. Obviously, they have to do something in the sense of you know living, but it's it's looked at on on what are you doing relative to what the standards are of success, and so just being a beautiful person, a kind person, no matter what they do is really not appreciated and people make excuses you know I, i've heard that so much you know he, he's really smart you know he's really good it's just that he has some ba 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 you know whatever and it's like well what do you mean he's just really smart but you know what about the butt part how <laughs> maybe the butt part is he's a lovely person and maybe he doesn't do well in maths or maybe whatever but it's not really appreciating that person in the sense of like a living being yeah. And statements like, well, if you're so smart, why are you so unsuccessful in the world? Yeah. And and I, and something that I've noticed is, you know, that the qualities that, I mean, not not everyone, but in the sense of that there's kind of a general feeling of the qualities of someone who's very loving, someone who is who shows equanimity, um, someone who is very caring, someone who is very patient. And these are all qualities that people cultivate on the spiritual path, you know, whether it's individually or collectively, these are all things that are considered to be something to be admired. And those are intrinsic to nature. Those are intrinsic to the animals. Those are intrinsic to the trees. But the more a person becomes that way, right? Meaning they shed these other kinds of things, a collective dominant society, the more they are looked down on because they're vulnerable, right? I mean, I experienced that myself. I, I feel like the more I've become a better person by the sense of embodying the qualities of a moose <laughs> or a rabbit or a tortoise, you know, patience, kindness, um, equanimity, non-reactivity, whatever those things are, I sense in the larger, the more I'm treated like an animal, <laughs> right? In other words, we admire, our society says, oh, we admire these things. But if one is actually like that, then you become prey to the predatorial society. And so that's with animals is that there's never enough time that a, a human will give an animal to be heard and be understood and listened, you know, to listen. Who is this person? Um, and so it's a self-perpetuating situation and, and we're caught into that. I mean, we see these in the fields of people who go into veterinary medicine or go into conservation biology, you know, they do it because they love the outdoors and they love animals, etc. But when push comes to shove, what really surfaces is they're pulled into making a living and subordinating what was their love in order for them to attain a certain kind of status a certain kind of acceptability within the collective society. And so you'll talk to people and they'll feel very sad. They're, they might be a very, you know, famous scientist and biologist or whatever. But, you know, a lot of times, and this was my own experience just talking to them, is they feel bad because they're not really living the love that brought them into that field, right? They're pushing papers, they're going to meetings, they're dealing with humans all the time and the work that they're doing with animals is more harmful than it is actually beneficial. 
Yeah, it's kind of like that old saying of gaining the world but losing your soul in the process. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the sort of most pernicious cornerstones is so much stress being on the individual in terms of not having a sense of self, which is an us, you know, and that is being constantly unappreciated that. And you, you see that in the a lot of that, you know, like in teaching or you see in nurses where their orientation in general is to serve and to support and to care for another. And they're treated very badly in general. Their pay is very bad. Uh, their social status is much lower than other professions and things like that. And those people are, the, the ones I've encountered and a lot of them, are really working for a cause because they really care about the the children that they teach. They really care about the patients for whom they serve and care for. And people are not rewarded for being kind, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it's very stressful. It's very stressful for those individuals. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, that the, there's such a movement. Um, it's a very quiet movement, but of a spiritual path, you know, whether it's mindfulness, meditation, or whatever, um, this notion of revitalizing the consciousness of, you know, what we call it at Karula, so nature consciousness, nature mindfulness. And if you hear any spiritual teacher, whether it's Pema Chodron or Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic priest, or Eckhart Tolle, or Adyashante, or John Corn, whatever, they will say that, you know, taking the spiritual path, committing to the spiritual path, in other words, not buying into this dualistic kind of way of looking at this predatorial thing is very courageous. And it is courageous. And that's the path of also nonviolence, which is, which is what we teach. And that's what nature is. Nature is nonviolent. As I was describing earlier, um, nonviolence, the way we describe it to define it is yes, a lion will eat a gazelle, but that's it done. And then everything's fine. It's non-exploitive. It's not basing relationships on what I can get from you. It's living in harmony and respect. So the spiritual path of mindfulness meditation is very courageous because it goes against the grain of this dominating society. And it makes one very vulnerable. And you look at, you look at all peace movements and nonviolence peace movements, the brutality to which they're subjected, whether it's Gandhi or, you know, a lot of these people are known, but there's millions, billions that didn't make it, but they were, they were pacifists. They were conscientious objectors because they chose to live their beliefs, the beliefs of non-dualism, you know, that we are, we are one and that there's deep respect and compassion. And that's what I think we're really called on right now, is we know what the problems are. The thing is, is what does the future look like? Or what does even the present look like? And so that also brings us into the notion of presence, that every single moment is sacred. Every single interaction, every single encounter is sacred. And there's a finesse, there's a refinement in terms of how we live. And so it's very difficult because we've been put on this conveyor belt in the dominant society where there's no time, you know, no space. Um, and they're very real. You know, you have to pay your mortgage or whatever it is or get food on the table for your children, you know, or write a grant so your sanctuary can succeed or, you know, there are these kind of pressing things. So it's very demanding 
but that's really what the spiritual path is. The spiritual path is to, in general, is to root in this sense of unity, in the sense of bringing goodness and love and compassion and equanimity into the world again. The us is more important than the me. Yeah. So what is it that keeps us separate from our connection to the moment in which we can feel connected together to talk about the spiritual process? Because we have this incredible pressure, which is very real (laughs) in the sense of uh, making a living um, or the social rejection. Plus we're pretty almost programmed, if you want to call it that, if you, again, just go by the Western anthropologist saying this sense of separation, dualism, us, them, started 15,000 years ago. That's a long time that it's been ingrained. And we are wired. We, we, you know, we don't want to die. We don't want to get killed. We don't want to get harmed. We certainly don't want our family or our loved ones. Um, we don't want them harmed. And the threat is very powerful. If I don't um, answer the phone, you know, I could piss someone off if I'm in the moment because I could lose a deal or that person might be upset that I didn't answer the phone because we were supposed to. So there's so many pressures that define our lives, that run our lives, that it's very difficult to step away and out of it. So again, you know, one difficulty is, for example, and these are with students that that I have have known and, and others, where it really is very difficult to go against, to choose the other path. You know, your parents may be angry at you. Your partner may be angry at you. Um, Your colleagues and friends don't want to talk to you anymore because you're not playing the game. Implicitly and explicitly, by not choosing to go the path that they're going, you're rejecting them and you're criticizing them. And then that comes back at you. So we face social, economic, and political rejection in very real ways. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. That's why community and spiritual communities and the beauty of mindfulness and meditation centers that are coming up. Not that everyone is great, but the whole point is, is that at least in terms of practices, people are committing to a way of being with each other that is different than the one before. And the community is so important because of that notion of, of we, we just are wired not to be rejected. You know, we're wired to connect. <laughs> you know, we're wired to love and feel loved. Unfortunately, like I said, just like in the case of the dogs and the horses, that sense of love is quite perverted. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, you do what I want. Otherwise, I won't, I won't love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I originally went out to California was to live in a spiritual community or psycho-spiritual community where people were gathering together to practice that kind of way of of approaching life as well as ourselves in relation to everything and each other. Mm-hmm. And it takes it takes time too, because we're sort of having to learn how to be with each other. And that's our grace village is that if we are part of na- seeing ourselves as nature, and living by the principles and ethics of animals and trees and other plants and the rest of nature, um, it changes how our human-human relationship. Right now, and in general, the human-human you know, contract has primacy over you know, human-non-human. And so there's even that difficulty. 
you know, what do you mean that your dog is more important to you than our relationship? Or, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying it in that sense. You know, Charlie Russell, whom I spoke about, uh, I wrote a book called Talking with Bears. Charlie, uh, there's a wonderful, it's online, it's with the BBC, and it's called Edge of Eden. And, and it's a beautiful story. Charlie lived with brown bears, which are grizzly bear counterparts in Russia for 10 years. And he lived all his life. He was from Alberta, Canada. And that's also in the Evolved Nest book. And he lived all his life with bears. And, you know, as one, he was a bear mother. <laughs> he raised 10 orphan baby bears and brown bears in Russia. And then also was taken under the wing by a wild mother brown bear. And he knew more about bears and their culture and their understanding and lived like a bear. And I, I don't mean that in a corny kind of way. I'm just saying in his in his morals and his ethics and principles. And people really admired him and they really knew he knew things, but he was rejected. And I think the fundamental reason that he was rejected <laughs> was because it was so threatening, right? The way he lived with bears and the way he was, was really the truth. And the dominating society didn't want to do that. It's very threatening because we have to give up our sense of control and power. And that's also the spiritual path, right? Is It's not based on acquiring power and control. It's giving up power in the sense of over someone else. It's an inner strength that is being cultivated, not in the sense of brute force. And so you see individuals who, you know, like Charlie was extraordinary, extraordinary. He was a very down-to-earth person. I mean, he was not, you know, la, 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 bears are wonderful. I mean, he loved bears because they're very honest, which is what he said. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of this journey for modern humans is this long process of unlearning everything we've learned along the way. Yeah, and that's hard because we don't get reward for it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What we've been talking about is that one gets criticized for that kind of thing. And you don't make a lot of money. And, and these are all wound up in the sense of control and, and a sense of security. So in the sense of, if you look at Charlie, his sense of security, if I may speak for him, we worked together for 10 years, was he knew himself. He knew how to live in the outdoors. And it wasn't one of these mountain men kind of stories. Um, you know, he didn't make a lot of money at all. He didn't want to be famous. He just wanted to give voice to what he learned and what he understood about bears. And so, you know, there is an intrinsic sense of vulnerability, as I said before, and we've been trained not to feel vulnerable. I mean, there's kind of a, a silly way of feeling vulnerable, like not paying attention. He liked to use the word, you have to pay attention. You can't just go da-da-da-da-da. You have to pay attention. When you look at a deer, or you look at a Puma, they're paying attention because this is their world, nature, reality. But there are no defenses. So in other words, you're smart. You can't just walk up to a bear and say, oh, you know, you're beautiful. You have to respect that individual. Listen, you don't walk up to a bear no more than someone would walk into your living room in that way. So, you know, the thing is that you pay attention and that paying attention is what is important to the trees and the land and the bears and the fish and around you. That's your home. That's your community. That's your nature. And, and, and there doesn't have to be this notion of defending yourself, you know, being on your guard. And the vulnerability really comes from a sense of trust. And that's something that we do not have in our society anymore. We do not have 
a fundamental sense of trust. And when you say that you're really talking about a trust in our our innate sense of self and natural authenticity and ability to connect with with everything in the world and ourselves. Yeah. And a large part of it is we've lost because again, this going back to earlier conversation is we aren't schooled to trust ourselves and ourselves is in a very deep spiritual kind of a sense. You know, we're told we're bad, you know, we're, we're told if you don't conform on the outside, then you're no good. So it's not only that we've cut ourselves off from the rest of nature, that cutting off has been internalized. So we don't necessarily trust ourselves, our deep self, which is really life. We get scared. So we, you know, surround ourselves with things that protect us. You know, we have to be in control because we're so scared all the time. So we become, as what Charlie talked about, living a life of being fear-determined as opposed to fear-informed. And so, you know, when it comes down to people describing bears, most people are terrified of bears, but they've never even met a bear. And when you ask them, well, why are you scared of bears? Well, they're really bad. Where did you hear that? Well, that's what everyone knows. And the science community perpetuated it. You know, is that film I told you about, Charlie, the statistic was over 100 years, 91 humans were killed by bears, and over 200,000 bears were killed. And again, it, it doesn't mean that you walk up to a bear. You, you know, it's no more that you just walk up to a person. You don't know where they're at. They don't know, you don't know their history. And so, you know, this comes down to trust, and trust is, again, really comes down to this deep connection of love. And that self-love in the sense, not a narcissistic way, but a respect and a care for this sort of spiritual being that we are, that all of the animals are and all the trees are in that way. So that comes into, and that's why, you know, the, the practices, spiritual practices and non-dualism, it's really solidifying ourselves and understanding of that and trusting that we are part of life, trusting in life in the sense of its deepest, in its deepest way. And that's really where I think it starts. And so that, that, that understanding, you know, how life and nature really is, then it gives us that connection of oneness. And it's really a rock <laughs> that essentially allows us to navigate the difficulties that we may encounter. So it's a very different orientation. Mm -hmm. Instead of trusting all of the external things that we can acquire and the relationships that we have, they come from deep inside. So it's trusting oneself and, and trusting the universe in a, in a bigger way. Not like I said, not in a foolish way, but in a respectful way. And it sounds like that's, you know, kind of returning to the notion of the spiritual process of quieting down those old stories and, and everything we've learned in the past so that we can access and, and reconnect with our inner innate wisdom and common sense. Yeah. And it's there. That's why, you know, meditation and mindfulness are examples like, you know, Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh, that the work is revitalizing what is natural. And that's nature. And so it's really revitalizing and re-sparking that soul that really is. And in so doing, we become less controlled from the external situations that we find ourselves in. It's very difficult, but at the same time, I, I think this is so wonderful, is that there really is a, you know, a, a global movement 
in different ways of humans breaking away from this old narrative that has kept us enchained and been so violent and oppressive and really renewing a new sense of being that is based on all the the wonderful things that we can experience. (laughs) But it's hard because, you know, in a sense, it's swimming upstream a lot of times because like the world, when people say, "I'm, I'm tired of the world, they're really talking about the human constructed world. And yeah. so it's learning how to navigate, to to connect in nature, to be that natural being, while at the same time navigating this human constructive world, which is breaking down. Yeah. And that term nature is also highly stigmatized in modern human culture because yeah. we we don't recognize innate human nature because our history, our legacy really has been fighting against that for millennia. And distancing from that. So even instant and innate is looked down upon. But when you look at it, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, wow. These things are quote unquote instinctive. That's that. That's very, very deep wisdom. You know, and when people say, well, there's the instinct to kill, there is no instinct to kill. You know, that whole thing of violence is very rare, except in this narrative that we've been enmeshed in for 15,000 years. So the instinct, you know, I wrote this little, I called it the kindness instinct. It was a story about a a man that, um, I don't know, he was somewhere back east. It was freezing. He's on his way to work. The river is partly frozen. He sees this dog drowning and he jumps in and saves the dog. And then he was interviewed afterward. And um, the reporter said, so, you know, why did you do that? You know, you could have died. And he goes, I don't know. It's just the right thing to do. And then he said, I don't even like dogs. And I love that story because it's an example of that innate love, that innate connection of care for life in that way. And when he says, you know, I didn't even like dogs, it's like, that that's not the point. The point is, is that like I called it the kindness instinct. And there is this kindness instinct that I do believe is, is fundamental in all humans. It's just been buried for so long. Mm-hmm. And it tends to take a crisis for that to yeah. emerge. Yes. Yeah. And we're in one now in a sense of everything is very scary. And that that's something that's also real different. This is a little tangential, but not really. When people are really traumatized or really upset, most people, most humans will like to be out in nature. And that's because there's coherence. There's peace. Um, It makes sense. Nature doesn't do crazy things. There may be a volcano or maybe a fire or a flood. Um, Those things happen, but everything settles right back. In contrast, in our human society is totally chaotic, totally unpredictable, very dangerous in so many different ways. Yeah. So how how did this whole journey begin for you? How did you come to this work, this learning and and this wisdom? Well, I, I kind of grew up, I was born into this kind of environment, you know, what we call the evolved nest. And I only experienced a sense of oneness. I mean, I wasn't living out in the woods like Charlie was. I was kind of living a suburban life, but that's the way my parents were in the atmosphere. And I grew up with all animals and and I didn't see them as, uh, I wasn't told that's a dog and that's a goose and that's a parrot. And, you know, 
And then I kind of got on the conveyor belt, <laughs> you know, went to school and stuff and everything was fine for a while. But then, you know, as I got more into the system um, and I really had no plan. I mean, my, if I had any plan, it was truth and service. That's kind of the way I was taught by my parents and love. And then it became very difficult and it has been very difficult functioning in this human constructed world. And so my path, you know, was just intuitive, but it eventually led back into, you know, the work that I was doing. I had intended to write books. I had intended to, you know, get doctorate degrees or anything like that. But there was this inner part of me, I believe, unbeknownst to me, that kind of made it through that jungle. <laughs> and so coming back into the work of you know, writing about animals and talking about these things, the elephant PTSD was just, it became a vehicle for me to express in collective language, aka science and writing, what I had experienced myself as a child in my inner and personal experiences. And so that, you know, even more, and that in itself was also insufficient because um, it wasn't the truth. I mean, the, what we learn in school and you know, various kinds of social constructs, whether it's movements or whatever, drew me back to more spiritual practices and doing meditation and mindfulness, which again, it was just a natural, kind of like a salmon going back home. It was, I actually wrote about it. I said, when I started meditation and mindfulness, you know, more formally, I loved it so much because it was familiar. It was the way I was when I was growing up and inside, you know, the way I felt with the animals. And so that has been kind of the evolution of coming back home. That's how I look at it is coming back home. And, you know, I speak for, I do my best in terms of trying to articulate and encourage others to have those experiences and um, be part of the revitalization and the renewal of our species. I don't think humans are bad. I think, unfortunately, there's something really strange which happened with a certain amount of the humans. But I don't think humans are bad. I just think it takes revitalizing, and it's a tough road in revitalizing each of our soul spark to be natural and to be whom we are meant to be in terms of life, the life force. And you just said something happened to humans. What's your insight into what happened to humans that, that changed the course away from our, our innate natural way of being? I have no idea. I mean, there's various, <laughs> various theories. I mean, ranging from a virus to, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, extraterrestrial, you know, or, you know, it was the discovery of the wheel or fire. I mean, there's all these different explanations. Not all humans went that path. You know, there's many, many, many indigenous humans that never went down that path at all. And they've been fighting to be able to not, you know, like the, the tribes, like in the Amazon, they don't want, we don't want to be like you just leave us alone. Let us live our lives. Let us be part of nature. But so I, I, I have no idea for me, the most important thing is to realize that, that that's an anomaly, that that is something that is, you know, that what is considered norm, you know, what Gabor Mate talks about the myth of normal is not, it's not healthy. And it's requiring us to step over the line from, for whatever you want to call it, dualism to non-dualism, you know, all this reductionism and the splitting and the conflict and the violence and competition, that paradigm as a norm, as understanding it as an anomaly and returning to oneness and love and unconditional love and equanimity and care and respect. And 
I think that's the most important thing is to just understand that, well, for whatever reason, it went that way and commit to a bigger cause, which is the soul of the cosmos, the soul of the world and the animals. And by supporting the animals, by supporting the land, by committing to service to them, we are revitalizing the consciousness, which is so necessary. We're revitalizing this beautiful consciousness, which is creating the universe <laughs> in that way. So when, for example, having sanctuary like we have, it, it's not, quote unquote, just saving animals, their bodies, it's their consciousness. It's revitalizing consciousness. And that revitalizing the consciousness, you know, in, enhances the life force that's within us all. Say more about that. Well, I think consciousness in this very deep spiritual sense is the currency. I mean, I know there's something vaster and completely bizarre and whatever that is might be going on. But I think within, you know, the capacity of my own thinking and, and others, you know, there's so much more going on. The consciousness, it, that in itself is the pulse of life. It's like when you see someone who's alive and then on, then they die, that thing that was there that's no longer there or has changed in some fashion that right there is the currency that is the the life force and and that's like you know the blood of the world of the of the cosmos so you know when when you love someone i'm not being very coherent but when you love someone yes you love their their body you know the smell the touch and then that's why it's such a shock when they pass and and yet there's that essence of the consciousness that is remained doesn't go away. You know, that's the, that's the stuff that you love. You know, their, their bodies and the way they talk and smell and the things together. Those are so wonderful. And those are our, those are gifts, but that consciousness is really what's important and being part of that consciousness and cultivating, you know, kind of cleaning out our consciousness so that we are tapped into this beautiful life force that creates this incredible beauty around us. I mean, oh my gosh, look, I mean, just amazing. Every aspect of every leaf, of every amoeba, every tardigrade, these tiny little tiny things, um, the river, the smell, it's just so beautiful. And that to me is what we're being called to do is to revitalize that, to come back into it and let go of this obscuring negativity that has been oppressing us in the world for so long. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for going there. I could talk about the ineffable, you know. Um, I know. I know. I, I didn't actually mean to ask you that question, but I'm delighted that you went there because we can have that experience even in, in the midst of these crises that we're facing today. Yes. 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 And that, what you just said, is so critical, is just holding on to that and replenishing it and celebrating it and revitalizing it because it needs that way. So like I said, in terms of, you know, helping the animals, dogs, parrots, tortoises, you know, bringing them out of these places of misery and, and homelessness and caring and loving, that right there is revitalizing this consciousness. We need their consciousness for ourselves. I mean, for the planet. So it's keeping that beautiful consciousness alive. I mean, in my opinion, everything's going to be quote unquote fine. I mean, we're, we're only a teeny part of the cosmos, but in terms of bringing this consciousness for ourselves and the rest of the world, 
that's what it really means to rescue an animal or to nurture a tree or to prevent a tree from being chopped down or something being developed. What we're really doing is we're resuscitating nature. We're resuscitating nature's consciousness. And that consciousness, it's a positive feedback. By doing that, you know, it, it strengthens and it fortifies the life force, which really holds us all together. And I love the bridging that you just did by talking about the currency of consciousness. Yeah. And And that's what it is when we experience. I mean, it's like you and I talking. What we're really tapping, the words are okay, but they're little signposts. Exactly. And mm -hmm. that's the point is that for me, you created a beautiful bridge between this, this very kind of capitalistic term of currency and equating it to consciousness, the currency that we can bring to everything in our lives, and also how this currency is is what actually, in the flow of it, is what actually makes us one with everything in consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's revivifying. You know, it, it awakens. It awakens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so beautiful if we can allow ourselves to just return to that that place. Yes, yes. And we all can. Um, it may be difficult, but that's where it comes in in terms of supporting each other, supporting each other in terms of this mission, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only things really standing in our way are our old stories, the, the old things that we've learned and you know the ways that we've been conditioned to see the world around us and each other and ourselves in relation to everything. And while that can be very, very challenging, depending on how much trauma and how much separation we've experienced in our lives, it is actually available in each moment if we can somehow find a way to let go of the old stuff and enter into this present moment. Well, that's why they call meditation and mindfulness practice. (laughs) Yeah. And it also becomes, you know, the go-to place. You know, in other words, when you practice, uh, if you like, I don't know if you played piano or done or something, you know, if you practice something and then something happens, there's the go to place. Oh, this feels good. This is right. You don't go to the old patterns. And again, that's also why it's so important to support each other, you know, to reinforce, you know, to give positive feedback because these small things, not reacting to an angry comment, you know, that one small hesitation and refraining from lashing back, that right there, wow, that has a big impact. Like you said, moment by moment. Yeah. And unfortunately, in our culture, we have been so conditioned to react to everything that comes our way that doesn't feel safe Yeah, or comfortable. Yeah. That doesn't mean to lock ourselves off. But something that is helpful is, you know, trying to as much as possible you know, create your space to help you not go into those habits. So the meditation practice or, you know, spending time with an individual, you know, whether an animal or a human or trees, you know, and really value, prioritize. I think the whole notion is prioritize being present, prioritize the good feeling, you know, and, you know, learning discernment, like, "Mm, you know, I'm picking that up. I don't think I better go down that path and that interaction. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's sort of learning how to to repattern ourselves as well. 
Yeah, creating new choices. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of new choices, this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio, your alternative choice on the radio dial or in cyberspace or wherever you get these things into your ear by. And I'm speaking with Gay Bradshaw, co-author of The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. And yeah. again, supporting each other on that. You know, for example, if you know someone and, you know, they didn't lose their temper, you know, you can say, you know, that was great. Did a great job, you know. And I don't know that. I mean, that sounds so minor, but it isn't because these these things tend to, you know, that's the notion of the karma. You know, they get repeated over and over and over. It's the repatterning. And I think, you know, really in all sorts of ways, you know, expose yourself to the positive, you know, like really, really value a tree as much as you would value, you know, someone you work with, you know, just because they're not a human does not mean that they're a less than at all. They're a more than in, in the sense of they have the qualities that you aspire to. So spend time helping an animal and really commit to that individual, commit to their consciousness and, and learn and understand how they are able to be so beautiful despite what's going on around them. Yeah. And in a very real sense, they're so far ahead of us because they don't have this mountainous pile of stuff to unlearn to get back to where they already naturally yeah. are. Well, one image is, is just think about all the, like you said, the stories and all those other things is just kind of like a coat <laughs> or a hat or something, you know, where that you can take it off. You know, you're the same as that, that dog. You're the same as that rabbit. All you have to do is just take off that coat of those stories. I mean, I know that sounds easy, but sometimes using those kinds of images of who your real self is, your real self is that rabbit, your real self is that elephant, your real self is that, and understanding that the other stuff is really superficial, even though it can be ingrained, because we are ingrained after thousands and thousands of years and the way we are reinforced in that way, but realize it doesn't define you. You can take it off. Yeah. Yeah who we really are is that which is inside that coat or underneath that hat, but is not the coat or the hat or the stories associated with all of that. Yes, exactly. Well, again, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. Well, thank you, Tonya. That was lovely. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you to talk about octopuses and perhaps sperm whales, but I don't know that that's even necessary anymore. Well, I we think can do that in because <laughs> I think we got to the heart of the matter. Yeah, yeah. And and I will make a comment about an octopus. I mean, that they're no different than us other than they, they don't have that coat or that hat. I mean, the great wisdom and kindness and beauty that they are. You know, and so the other image is taking off the glasses, taking off the glasses of what we've been conditioned to think and see. You know, don't see difference. See diversity. But really connect to that inner life force, that inner consciousness of the octopus. Because that's how they do, that's how they connect with us. That's how they try to connect with us in that way. And that's actually why I wanted you to, to talk about octopuses, because they are the most different from us in the animal kingdom, the animal world, that 
we're aware of, and we're just beginning to discover their tremendous innate intelligence that we're still just beginning to discover. Well, I mean, discover is is realize, uh, same as a clam. I mean, yeah. the same as a, a bumblebee. <laughs> and that's the thing is, is that we're so obsessed with appearance. I mean, it's gorgeous. You know what I mean? I mean, it's wonderful, beautiful forms, but that's not the real thing. <laughs> you know, the real thing among humans as well as non-humans is that essence inside. And so I guess that's is don't get distracted on the outside. Just focus into the inside and listen to that inside. But also to be appreciative of how that essence can be expressed in very, very different ways than we're familiar with. Yes, exactly. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much and uh, of having me on your beautiful show. Well, thank you for your beautiful, beautiful work. Okay. Well, take care and stay in touch. I will. And you too. And be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Gabe Bradshaw is the founder and director of the Carolos Center for Nonviolence and the co-author of The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. The simple bare necessities Forget about your worries and your strife I mean the bare necessities Are Mother Nature's recipes That bring the bare necessities of life Wherever I wander, wherever I roam I couldn't be found of my big home The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants Then maybe try a few The bare necessities of life will come to you They'll come to you for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities Forget about your worries and your strife I mean the bare necessities That's why a bear can rest at ease With just the bare necessities of life Now when you pick a pawpaw or a prickly pear And you prick a raw paw, well next time beware Don't pick the prickly pear by the paw. When you pick a pear, try to use the claw. But you don't need to use the claw when you pick a pair of the big paw paw. Have I given you a clue? The bare necessities of life will come to you. 
they'll come to you. Just try and relax, yeah, cool it, fall apart in my backyard. Cause let me tell you something, little wretches, if you act like that bee acts, uh-uh, you're working too hard. And don't spend your time looking around for something you want that can't be found. When you find out you can live without it And go along not thinking about it I'll tell you something true The bare necessities of life will come to you Look for the bare necessities The simple bare necessities Forget about your worries and your strife I mean it
desert You can't remember your name Cause there ain't no one for to give you no pain Thank you. 